Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I'm going to read Matthew 18. I'm sure you guys haven't heard it before. (laughs) At the time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of such things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your hand causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. And in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refused to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whenever you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he said. His 
fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went to their master and told him everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In, in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Thank you, Kelsey. You know, I've, I've really learned a lot in the past 14 months or so since I've moved to Minnesota. I, I really uh, didn't have any experience of Minnesota before, before moving here. My only time in this state uh, before, before I began interviewing for this job was a layover, a two-hour layover I had in the Twin Cities once on a flight between Kansas City and Denver. And if you're thinking right now that that a, a layover in the Twin Cities between Kansas City and Denver doesn't really make that much sense. Just know it doesn't make any sense to me either. But that's, that's uh, how the flight ended up that day. Uh, but as I was getting close to, uh, to graduating and figuring out what was next and everything with that, people would ask me what my plans were. And, and I would say, you know, I, I don't know how it's going to work out yet, but I, I think I, one of the options is, is going to Minnesota. And and someone would always along the way say something along the lines of like, well, you know it's cold there. As if that thought hadn't occurred to me yet, and as if that was going to be a deal breaker when it did occur to me. Um, but once I got here, uh, I, I became acquainted pretty quick uh, with something else that no one else had, had prepared me for, and that was the idea of Minnesota nice. Now, I... I actually did some research on this topic this week in the place where all good research is done, Wikipedia, and, and I got uh, the following definition. Uh, Wik- according to Wikipedia, Minnesota nice is a cultural stereotype applied to the behavior of people from Minnesota, implying residents are unusually courteous, reserved, mild-mannered, and passive-aggressive. Uh, the phrase also applies... Uh, this is, I'm just reporting Wikipedia. Don't, I'm, don't shoot the messenger. The phrase also implies polite friendliness, an aversion to open confrontation, a tendency toward understatement, a disinclination to make direct fuss or stand out, apparent emotional restraint, and self-deprecation. Now, I don't mean to be uh, too controversial this morning, but um, as someone who grew up in another part of the Midwest, I think you find versions of this in other places. But I had never seen it embraced or uh, an awareness of it as much as what I've found here in Minnesota. Uh, I mean, I, I went to Caribou on Friday to get a cup of coffee, and on the coffee cup it said Minnesota Nice, and you spend about three minutes on Google, and you can find all sorts of T-shirts and wall hangings and all sorts of things uh, promoting this idea. Now, I don't have anything against being nice to people. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to make that bold statement from this stage if you want to put on social media that you're your preacher is pro-nice. Um, but if I can be honest, before we get into the passage of Scripture we're going to be unpacking this morning, I, I think Jesus at least partially confronts what we consider uh, Minnesota nice. Now, we're in the fourth week of this series that we've called a Jesus 
people. We've been making our way through the section of teaching from Jesus that we just heard read to us from Matthew chapter 18, where, where Jesus talks about what it looks like for us to live as his people in the world. Now, we've seen Jesus has a different approach to greatness than what our world tends to have as he calls us to be like little children within his kingdom. Uh, We've seen the concern Jesus has for his people in the midst of situations where where they're in danger of being led away from him. And today, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 20, where Jesus deals with what to do when that stumbling happens within the body of believers. Now, if you remember back to the, the second week of this series, we looked at verses 7 to 9 of this chapter where, where Jesus lamented the fact that there are things and people who will make their best efforts to lead little ones, his followers, away from him. Now, we looked at the drastic language Jesus uses in verses 8 and 9 to say that if your hand causes you to sin, you'd be better off cutting it off completely than having it continually lead you astray from Jesus. We talked about how that's a teaching Jesus uses elsewhere. We see it in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about how to deal with sexual sin and temptation. But here, in chapter 18, this chapter devoted to how to live as a group of people who are following Jesus, his focus when he uses that is a little different. He's not just talking about dealing with sin in our own individual lives. He's focused on how to deal with sin among a community of people. So Jesus is not talking about literal human bodies in verses 7 to 9. He's talking about what's referred to elsewhere as as the body of Christ, his people, the church. And what to do when there is something within that body causing division and sin and leading people away from him. And it's not like those verses are simple to deal with when we just read them for what they mean for us as individuals. But I think they become even more sticky when we read them in in their context here and look at what they mean for the church as a whole. I mean, I don't don't know about you. I I don't go out looking for conflict on a regular basis. I don't enjoy awkward conversations. And anyone that I know that does enjoy conflict and awkward conversations tends to be someone that's not that fun to hang out with for too long. So why would Jesus tell us that sometimes the best way to treat a problem in the body is through amputation? I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to make it as best we can and avoid any conflict? I I think what Jesus would say, based on this passage we're going to be looking at this morning, is actually no. And if Jesus says no to our tendencies, if Jesus says no to what we think would be best, that must mean, if we trust in Jesus, that he has something better in store for us. The message of Jesus calls us away from our natural tendencies, from our default behaviors, because it is inviting us into something that might be a little uncomfortable, but in the long run is far better than where we'll get ourselves by falling back into our typical routine. So let's work through this passage where Jesus shows us the process for dealing with sin, the purpose for dealing with sin, and then the person who leads us as we deal with sin. So that's what we're getting this morning, process, purpose, and person. Let's start in verses 15 to 17. Jesus is speaking. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. 
And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Jesus lines out a very clear process here on how to deal with sin within the church. And that process, like Ike was saying during the children's sermon, has reconciliation as the goal. This is not advice on how to make sure you win every fight and conflict you might have from Jesus. A friend of mine from high school got married a few years ago, and at the reception, they had, uh, you might have seen this at a wedding reception before, where they've got little pieces of paper uh, with prompts on it for you to write something for the couple of advice, marriage advice, and things like that. And, and one of the lines on that piece of paper, I remember, said, when you fight, dot, 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 and me, being the supportive friend that I am, gave the, gave the advice, when you fight, dot, 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 make sure you win. Which, you know, I'm aware that there's probably better advice in the world, but there's also worse, uh, probably. And that's not the advice. I wasn't serious when I gave that advice, for the record. Um, And that's not the advice Jesus is lining out in this passage. Jesus' goal is reconciliation. Now, that goal's not always realized, and that's unfortunate but that does not mean that it should not still be the goal. And this is where the metaphor of amputation Jesus was using earlier sort of breaks down, because because you don't amputate a limb so that later you can reattach it, at least in my experience. But that's where Jesus is headed uh, with this process that he's outlining here. And it's important to keep in mind, too, that these verses begin with Jesus saying that if your brother and sister sins... Or depending on the translation you're reading, it might narrow the focus even more to say if your brother or sister sins against you. And I highlight that here to keep us from twisting the words of Jesus into something that he's not saying. The the process Jesus walks through in in this passage is how to deal with sin. Not what to do if you don't like the songs that are being sung on a Sunday morning. Not what to do if you don't like the color of the carpet. Jesus has bigger fish to fry here. This is a situation where sin is threatening the well-being of the body of Christ. Jesus is describing situations where his people are in danger of being divided because of actions among his people that are directly against what he has called his people to be. There's a balance that has to be struck with the words Jesus is saying in in this passage. Now, on the one hand, he is saying that there are times where there is sin and division among his people, and we would prefer to just pretend and sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not there and muddle through as best we can, when what really needs to be done is is a direct confrontation head-on so that healing can occur. But on the other hand, he's not saying that the answer any time that anything happens that you don't like, the solution is to confront someone over it. Just because something might not be exactly how, how you would have done it does not mean that a sin has, has occurred. Throughout this entire process, wisdom is necessary for all of God's people because that's how wisdom is best shown amongst the entire community, and we'll see that more as we go along. And the process involves, you can see in the words of Jesus, it involves starting small and working out because the goal is ultimately reconciliation. This process Jesus describes does not start with a Facebook rant. It does not start with gossip. 
it starts with going to the person who is at fault one-on-one and addressing the topic head-on with the goal, the hope being that the issue can be resolved right then and there. That's plan A, if you will. That, that's the goal. That's the hope of reconciliation. And, and then Jesus says if that doesn't work, the circle of people involved gets slightly wider, but only slightly. There in verse 16, Jesus says plan B, if you will, is to bring along one or two other people who can mediate. This is not gathering an angry mob to tear someone else down. It is going to a brother or sister out of love and out of concern with the hope that if the issue can't be resolved one-on-one, maybe it can be resolved by bringing in a couple more voices who, can, who also desire reconciliation from the situation. And that's based on the precedent we find in the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 19.15, right there at the end of verse 16, where, where God laid down the same guidelines for dealing with sin and conflict in ancient Israel under the leadership of Moses. As as an extension of the ninth of the Ten Commandments, to not bear false witness, God gives commands to prevent someone from giving false testimony on their own to get someone they don't like in trouble with the broader community. If you're going to bring a charge against someone, God says you can't do it on your own. You need to go with other witnesses who can verify the charge being brought. And Jesus builds off of that in Matthew 18 to say that if sins are being addressed among his people, it can't just be one person's word against another person's. It must be dealt with among people who have the Holy Spirit and are seeking what is truly best for the people of God as a whole, as opposed to factions playing party politics. If two people who have the Holy Spirit and love one another can't be reconciled through meeting as individuals, the hope is that they would be able to be reconciled within a small group of people who also love Jesus and one another and are filled with the Spirit. And if that doesn't work, plan C, as Jesus lines it out there in verse 17, is to bring it before the entire church. And and again, this is a last resort. This is a situation where someone is directly disobeying the commands of God. They've been made aware of that. They know they're disobeying the commands of God, and they are still not willing to repent from their sins so that they and the rest of God's people can be healed and can thrive. And in that scenario, Jesus says that the issue should be brought before the community But again, just in case you're not sick of hearing me point this out yet, let me say again, the goal is not to shame someone or guilt someone. The goal is reconciliation. This is not a public flogging. It is a family begging one of their own to come home for their own good and for the good of the the entire family. And if even that fails, Jesus says there's a break in the relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that the relationship's over, and we'll unpack that a little more here in a few moments. But it does mean that this relationship will not be able to continue as it has previously because of the presence of sin and division that sin causes. This is the process Jesus works through for how a group of people that belong to him deal with sin. And it is a process that is hopefully not intended to be used every single week. This is a break glass in case of emergency kind of teaching. But Jesus takes the time to work through this so that we can know how to approach our relationships with one another in light of how we relate to Jesus. 
We don't just cut people out of our lives that we don't like or don't get along with. Being a part of a Jesus people means being a part of a family. And so when sin threatens the well-being of that family, Jesus calls for us to address it so that we can thrive. And if we keep reading this passage, we see the purpose for the process he's described. In verses 18 to 20, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. The purpose for why Jesus lines out the commands that he does in verses 15 to 17 about how to deal with sin and how to pursue reconciliation is because the church is to operate in unity with one another as we all pursue the will of God together. There's a lot in this passage that can be easily misunderstood if we're not reading Jesus' words well here. So we need to slow down and make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. First, Jesus basically says in verses 18 and 19 that whatever the church decides to do on earth will be backed up by God. At least that's what it sounds like when we first read it. But what Jesus is saying here becomes a little more clear if we look at the types of verbs Jesus uses in the original Greek. If I could over-translate a little bit this morning, what Jesus says in these verses is, whatever you might bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. And whatever you might loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. These verses are not Jesus writing a blank check to the church, saying that we can do whatever, they, whatever we want and God is forced to back us up. Just as a hypothetical, I'm not judging you if you maybe did this last Sunday, but let's say... After the pie auction, we said everyone has to go home and immediately eat all the pies that they bought. And based on this verse, I say no one's going to get sick. Jesus said whatever we decide to do on earth, the God is going to back us up on it. So go home, eat all the pie you want. I promise you're not going to get sick. If I, again, if you went home and ate all the pie you bought last week, there is no judgment for me. But let's just say hypothetically. If, if that had happened... God would not have looked at the situation and thought, well, that wasn't very smart. I mean, it's not really the best strategy in the world, but they kind of got me in a bind here. I mean, they, they cited Matthew 18, so I guess I got to follow through on, on what they said. Uh, that's, not, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying that when a group of people are earnestly following him together, when they have to reach difficult decisions, when they have to deal with sin like he's just described, God's presence goes ahead of them. As a church family, we should always be seeking where God is leading us, as Jesus describes here, as opposed to deciding what we want to do and hoping God will back us up along the way. And that is especially true of the situation Jesus is describing here of seeking reconciliation. This is not done lightly. Every step of the way is done by seeking the guidance of God. And we also need to pay attention to the fact that Jesus is addressing an entire group of people as he's speaking here, and he's addressing an entire group as we read his words today. Every time the word you appears there in verses 18 and 19, it is a plural, not a singular. That means Jesus is not saying this sort of intimacy with God to where your decisions are being guided by him that he's describing in these verses is only available to a select few who have climbed the ladder. It's available to any group of people following Jesus together. 
That means that in everything we do, but especially in situations where things are difficult, we have to make hard, hard decisions, awkward conversations have to happen, we should always be seeking God's presence and guidance because our God is a God who goes before us. He's not sitting up there waiting for us to figure it out. He's the one we look to for guidance and leadership because he is the thing that unites us together above all else. And that is available to all people in all circumstances, even those that might seem really mundane and irrelevant. Which is what Jesus is, that's what Jesus is getting at with verse 20, where he says, where two or three are gathered, he is there with them. This verse can be pretty easily misunderstood if we pull it out of context. I I saw a satirical article once that had the headline, local man waiting for second person to gather so Jesus can show up. I've heard this verse cited in all kinds of situations, usually when when audience for some event is not as high as everyone hoped or expected, and they're trying to make the point that, well, you know, some good might still come out of this situation. We don't have as many people here as we would have hoped, but Jesus said two or three are gathered. He's there with them, so we've only got four people for church today, but, you know, Jesus is with us based on this verse. And I don't mean to rain on any parades, but that's not what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that when his people are seeking his will, when we have to make difficult decisions, when we have to deal with sin, he is with us. Even if it might seem like no one else is paying attention or no one cares, Jesus cares and Jesus is with his people. When we gather together for for worship, for moments like this, when we gather together for for some business meeting pertaining to the church, when we pray for God's presence, when we pray for God's wisdom in those moments, that's, that's not an empty thing. That's not some vague gesture of, well, we're in the church building, so I guess we might as well pray. That, that's not what's going on at all. That is us stating that we are taking the words of Jesus seriously here, that we want to follow where he is leading us and that we trust that he will be with us and that he will guide us. So we've seen the process Jesus lines out in these verses for for how to deal with sin among the community of people. We've seen the purpose behind those commands that Jesus gives in these verses. But but what if things don't go according to plan? Jesus says when someone won't even listen to the entire church, like we've already talked about, he says to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. What do we do when that's the point we reach? Like we saw last week in the parable Jesus told about the shepherd. The goal is still, even in that scenario, that, that there would be reconciliation because Jesus is still pursuing that person and we are people who are following Jesus and want to be like him. That language of treating someone like a pagan or a tax collector would have been pretty serious language to the people listening to Jesus' words when he was first giving this teaching. This is language of complete excommunication, a statement by the community to the person living in sin that because of their actions, they're no longer considered a part of God's people. When we read through this passage, at least speaking for myself, we can, we can read what Jesus says here is making that point. At some point or another, we, just, we reach a point of no return. We just have to wash our hands of the situation and give up completely. But if we're reading Jesus' words in verse 17 along with the parable Jesus told in the passage we looked at last week of the shepherd leaving the 99 to pursue the one sheep, I don't think it's that simple. Now, Jesus is serious about the process he is lining out in this passage about how to deal with sin. Don't get me wrong on that. But at the same time, 
the person speaking, the person giving us this direction is the same shepherd that pursues the one sheep that has wandered away from the 99. The person speaking is the same person who had a reputation for hanging around people like pagans and tax collectors. Now, I know the kids have probably tuned me out completely ever since Isaac got done with the children's sermon, but I, I, want, I want to see if they can help us out here to see the point of this verse. Kids, who, who's the author of this book that we've been reading? Matthew. I don't know who said it, but Matthew. Yeah. And this might be a question for the older kids, but I think someone will get it. What, what did Matthew do before he became a disciple of Jesus? He was a tax collector. I think that was one of the Chesneys. I just want to give a shout out. Okay, good job. Matthew was a tax collector. In Matthew chapter 9, we're told the story of Jesus inviting Matthew to come be one of his disciples. And after this, Matthew has him over to his house for dinner. We're we're told that at this dinner, Matthew says, there were many tax collectors and sinners. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day aren't happy about this, and and they confront Jesus over it, and Jesus says to them that this is the crowd, tax collectors and sinners, those are the people he has come for. Later, in Matthew chapter 11, in in a part of this longer discussion, Jesus says that one of the criticisms of him and his ministry is that he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Then we get to Matthew chapter 21. During the last week of Jesus' life, he's in a debate with some religious leaders, and Jesus says to them that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering into God's kingdom before them because they have so drastically misunderstood God's purposes. And then to cap it all off, the Gospel of Matthew ends with this passage that we call the Great Commission, where Jesus calls his followers to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, to go to the kind of people that the average Israelite in Jesus' day would have referred to as as a pagan. And I think if we're truly going to grasp the significance of what Jesus is getting at with these verses, we have to keep all those other passages in mind. Oftentimes, grace is pretty messy. We can walk through this process, Jesus lines out here, but if it's just a flow chart we walk through without considering the fact that Jesus is the one giving us this process, we run the risk of missing what he's calling us to. Even in a worst-case scenario, like Jesus describes in these verses, where it is said to someone that they are no longer a part of God's church, that is not an eternal condemnation pronounced over them for all time. It's a change in relationship to be sure. Please don't mishear me on that, but it is a change in relationship that has a goal of reintroducing someone to Jesus. If someone is so opposed to the commands of God that they are willing to look their brothers and sisters in Christ in the eye and say, I know what the commands of God say, but I don't care, Jesus shows us here the next step. Plan D, if you will, is to continue to do everything that is possible to show them the love of Jesus, even if they don't deserve it, just as Jesus was known for doing with people like pagans and tax collectors. This passage has a lot of really just straightforward teaching about how to walk through this process. And if I can be honest, my hope is that no body of believers, Marian included, ever has to walk through this process. But if and when it becomes necessary, 
to follow Jesus' teaching in this passage, my prayer is that as a Jesus people, it would be carried out with love and grace and have reconciliation and restoration as its end goal. So this is not necessarily a sermon that I'm going to demand everyone go out and find a place to apply it this week. But at the same time, if the Spirit puts something on your heart this morning, please, please seek reconciliation. Jesus' words here are not a free pass to burn every bridge you can. It is an invitation to step into his love and grace to have relationships restored so that everyone involved can grow to be more like Jesus. If there is sin that is going unchecked amongst people that you love and Minnesota nice makes you feel like you should probably just let it go, don't be afraid to step up and say something, even if it's awkward, even if it's uncomfortable, not from a place of wanting to pick a fight, not from a place of wanting to win an argument, but because you want sin to be done away with so that everyone who is a part of this body can grow to be more like Jesus because that's what we've been called to do. Let's pray. God, we are astounded at the reality that you have made us your people and then invited us into your mission to go out into the world and offer your message of grace and forgiveness to people who so desperately need to hear it. So, Father, be with us as we carry out that task, as your body, as your people, as a, as a city on a hill, as a light shining in the darkness. Guide us, please, as we seek your wisdom, as we seek your leading. Give us wisdom to navigate difficult situations. Help us to follow your teaching well so that those among us can be drawn into deeper relationship with you and those around us can see what life in you looks like and be invited in to be a part of it. We're thankful for that hope that we have. And it's because of Jesus we have it and it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 